Uber's infrastructure supports millions of riders and billions of dollars in transactions. Uber has high throughput and high availability requirements because users depend on the service for their day-to-day transportation. When Uber was going through hypergrowth in 2015, the number of services was growing rapidly, as was the load across those services. Using a cloud provider was a risky option because the costs could potentially grow out of control. Uber made a decision early on to invest in physical hardware in order to keep costs at a reasonable level. In the last three years, Uber's infrastructure has stabilized. The platform engineering team has built systems for monitoring, deployment, and service proxying. Developing and maintaining microservices within Uber has become easier. Prashant Varanasi and Akshay Shah are engineers who have been with Uber for more than three years. They work on Uber's platform engineering team, and their focus is on the service proxy layer right now, which is a sidecar that runs alongside Uber's services, providing features such as load balancing, service discovery, and rate limiting. Prashant and Akshay join the show to talk about Uber infrastructure, microservices, and the architecture of a service proxy. We also talk in detail about the benefits of using Go for critical systems infrastructure, as well as some techniques for profiling and debugging in Go. Before we get started, we have a few events coming up. We have a conversation with Hasib Qureshi at Cloudflare on April 3rd, 2019. You can find out about that by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. And we also have a hackathon for Find Collabs, the company that I'm building. The Find Collabs hackathon can be found by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. It's both a virtual hackathon and an in-person hackathon. We're meeting at App Academy on April 6th, 2019. And you can sign up. We're going to have some food. We're going to hang out. We're going to hack on some interesting projects. It's for anybody who has a project they want to hack on, whether it's an art project or a open source software project or something relating to music. It is for technically minded people, just like the listeners of Software Engineering Daily. And you can find out more about Find Collabs by going to findcollabs.com or findcollabs.com slash hackathon. The hackathon has a $5,000 prize purse, so you're not hacking for nothing. So with that, let's get on with today's episode. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 technologies, including AWS, Kubernetes, and Lambda. Datadog unites metrics, traces, and logs in one platform so that you can get full visibility into your infrastructure and your applications. Check out new features like trace search and analytics for rapid insights into high cardinality data. And Watchdog, an auto-detection engine that alerts you to performance anomalies across your applications. Datadog makes it easy for teams to monitor every layer of their stack in one place. But don't take our word for it. You can start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a t-shirt for free at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog. To get that t-shirt and your free Datadog trial, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog. (music) 
Prashant and Akshay. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're glad to be here. You're both engineers at Uber, and I'm looking forward to talking about several different infrastructure topics within Uber. Three years ago, we did a show with Matt Ranney, who is a senior engineer at Uber, and that show has always stuck out for me because around that time, Uber was developing systems to deal with the rapid scalability, and it was indeed rapid, perhaps the most rapid scalability that any software engineering organization has faced so you've both been at Uber for three years. You were around in that time. How has the infrastructure changed since then? Yeah, so things have definitely changed quite a bit since you did that interview with Matt. I think when Matt spoke to you, that was really at the peak of the crazy growth in computing needs at Uber. And so we were really focused on the short term. Every month, there would be a new system that needed to be rapidly fixed so that it could survive just the next three or six months of growth. Since then, I think through a combination of rebuilding systems just with elbow grease and good engineering and a little bit more growth in infrastructure hiring at Uber, we've managed to retrench a lot of those systems and things are much more stable now. That gives us the leeway to think one or three or five years ahead and really build systems with a longer time horizon. One reflection I had from uh, watching Uber around that time and talking to some engineers who work there was there was really a, a psychological exercise that I think needed to be done because you know, if you're going through that level of hypergrowth, your inbox is overflowing, you're, you're suffering from alert fatigue. It's, it's very hard to think longer term, let alone even shorter term. It's just very stressful. And I saw, I saw a talk from Akshay where he said going through hypergrowth early on, quote, everything was on fire, which is consistent with what, what Matt Ranney was saying around that time. Do you have any reflections on on how to psychologically adjust as an engineer in that kind of experience? I think the best thing was having a team of people around that I trusted and that I was lucky enough to work with. And having that team really always helping each other set priorities and remember that um, some stuff was going to break every day or every week. And the important thing was keeping the business moving and focusing on the various breakages and the problems that were going to bring the whole business down. And so if we got paged on and off for side systems or things that were kind of optional, um, that was okay. And that was just part of the cost of doing business. Yeah, I, I agree with Akshay. I think it's really a matter of prioritization and kind of accepting that you're not going to be able to fix everything about the current system and you need to focus on what really is important to keeping the business going and then using the other cycles to come up with a solution for the longer term. And so one example is when you're on core, you're really, really focused on solving the, the immediate needs. Anything that's affecting the business gets your full attention. But when you have a larger team, the other people on your team, they can help you fix you know, some of the less important issues, but it's almost better for them to focus on the longer term solutions and make progress towards fixing these problems in a more systematic way rather than patching individual issues with, with the current architecture. 
So sometimes you do need to focus on the longer term architecture rather than the immediate needs, as long as those immediate needs aren't affecting the business. Okay. Anyway, getting to infrastructure, why was it so hard to scale? I mean, we have quote unquote auto scaling infrastructure from cloud providers. Why didn't that solve all your problems? That's a really good question. Part of the answer is that Uber as a business was large enough and growing fast enough that how much money we spent on infrastructure actually mattered. So if you look at, for example, some auto scaling cloud thing like Google Cloud Functions or AWS Lambdas, per unit of compute, they're actually fairly expensive. Uber made a decision pretty early on to build the core of our platform on hardware that we own in data centers or colos that we rent for multi-year periods of time. And so that meant that we were not, uh, we weren't able to use things like Lambda or Cloud Functions when they first came out. I would also say the core of the problem around when Prashant and I joined was not usually burstiness and certainly not burstiness on a day over day level. The core of the problem was usually just baseline growth. So you might go from needing 100 servers to solve some problem today to needing 200 six months later and needing 500 a year later at steady state. That stressed a lot of our early designs. Um, One early thing that started falling over all over the place was the database. Um, It's very difficult to horizontally scale most databases. And so even if you can add more compute power to the application logic, it got very difficult to scale the databases to the volume of data, the number of connections, and the number of queries that we were trying to run against them. Another element of the complexity that I didn't understand until I uh, saw Akshay say it in, in a talk that he was giving was that from the outside, Uber looks like it's one giant business, but it's actually several hundred small local businesses across the world. Different geographies have different versions of Uber. And thinking about the the complexities of sharding the business as well as sharding the infrastructure really makes my head spin. It is certainly complicated. I think... Luckily, things are somewhat more rationalized than they were when I originally gave that talk. Um, But it's still true that the general managers of Uber's business in different cities, from a technical perspective, have a lot of control over exactly what toggles and settings are enabled and configured for their city. Especially for the business layer of Uber's software, that means that you can exercise very different code paths when handling traffic from different geographies. And particularly for monitoring, that that can be unpleasant because you might find out that the code path that has a bug in it is only exercised in cities that are 12 hours different from where you live. And so all the bugs there surface in the middle of the night for you. Luckily, though, from an infrastructure scaling perspective, um, our infrastructure is homogenous and is generally not concerned with that level of sharding. Let's get to talking about the services within Uber. 
So another reminiscence from that discussion with Matt Ranney was the number of services that uh, that Uber has running, which is not unfathomable for a large company. Many large companies have lots and lots of services. What principles do you have around architecting services within Uber? I think a lot of our microservice architecture has evolved from some of the problems we ran into with the monolithic architecture. So the monolithic architecture coupled a lot of things. It coupled deployments. So if you wanted to ship a new feature, you had to wait until the monolith was deployed. It coupled reliability. So if something low tier was crashing for some reason, you were bringing down the monolith, which was affecting the business and more business critical functionality. And so we've evolved from there. And that's where I think that's why we have a lot of these services is we want to isolate them as much as possible. So that means that when something less critical to the business is down, it shouldn't affect the rest of the business. So part of it could just be, is this important enough that it can be coupled with some other important functionality? If not, let's avoid the risk, move it into a separate microservice. And with that, you also get the ability to deploy and move a little faster too. So it allowed us to move faster in maybe the less critical microservices, whereas the critical microservices could be deployed a little bit more slowly instead of deploying over, say, a couple of hours. If it's something really important, you might even spend a week doing that deploy. And so that kind of ability to separate how you deploy, how you monitor, how quickly you need to react to an issue in that service, I think things like that have helped us decide how to separate our microservices. I think that's, that's absolutely true on a technical level. I think another aspect of Uber's growth that was really important was that we were hiring and onboarding new engineers and new teams and even new offices around the world relatively quickly. And so one other big benefit of microservices is that it lets Uber engineering as a whole organization set some uh, pretty loose guidelines and let individual teams decide how they want to do release management and how they want to do feature flags and code style and a bunch of other things that often end up being very controversial when you have large groups of engineers. And this lets let us optimize for having individual teams maximize their own feature velocity and their own development. And we went into that knowing that that would come at the cost of uniformity across the whole stack. How do services at Uber communicate with each other? We've actually gone with a, a model that's similar to something like Envoy that you see now, but we actually had this model you know, probably for four or five years now at Uber where rather than have microservices talk directly to the other microservices, they go through a load balancing proxy that's typically deployed on the host. So every service will make a request to say HTTP localhost port 10,000 and port 10,000 would mean I want to talk to the user service. And then the load balancer would have all of the logic for service discovery, health checking, and some sort of load balancing strategy that would all happen out of process. And that actually let us evolve our microservice architecture for different languages and frameworks without having to build all of the logic of uh, service discovery and load balancing into every language. 
And of course, in the years since we started that system, um, it's evolved significantly. And so at this point, I think it looks a little bit more like, uh, like Envoy or some service mesh-like thing. So you no longer address services by port number. Um, they're all addressed by name. And there's kind of a sophisticated uh, service discovery system that's tied into deployment. And you can delegate routing decisions to other processes. And you know there's a bunch of complexity like that that's not used by most services, but does enable some fairly complicated use cases. One of the advantages of doing this kind of routing out of processes, similar to Envoy, we have we have observability consistently across all of our services. So I think some of our most frequently used metrics actually come out of our routing stack because it emits you know, successes, latency numbers, all sorts of useful information consistently for uh, our microservice communication. So we've found that the out-of-process load balancing model has really helped us give us a consistent view into what's happening, but at the same time, giving us freedom to implement the microservices in the appropriate language for for the functionality. So what I understand about the service proxy model, at least from my conversations with different people who have used Envoy in this architecture, is you have your services that run in often in containers, and then you've got a separate container that you schedule next to this main service container. And that separate container is what's called a sidecar container. And the, the sidecar container is holding the service proxy, which will often be something like Envoy. And the responsibilities of that service proxy include service discovery, routing between different services, it can give you a lot of analytics. It's basically things that you want attached to every service so that we don't have to fold that logic into the core service that's sitting in, in that uh, that core service container. How does that align with, with your architecture? It's, it is very similar. So we've done the same thing where, exactly as you said, we don't have to build all those functionalities into the core service, but it's happening outside a process. The one difference is currently we actually have a single deployment of the proxy on the host rather than having one per service container. And that's actually something we're looking to change over time. So initially we we built it that way for just because we, we thought we could get the same functionality of out of process load balancing analytics without having to pay the cost of an extra container for every single service container. And so we're able to share the resources, which is connections to the service discovery platform were kind of coalesced for all of the services on the host. And so in terms of resource usage, we think this was a, a bit more of an efficiency win, I guess. But over time, we're actually moving more towards the sidecar model, mostly for other reasons that we haven't actually discussed yet, which is things like security. It's great to be able to provide security in a consistent way, similar to the load balancing, without having to build that into the core service. But once you're doing security, you really need the identity of the service. And you don't want to have to deal with multi-tenancy, especially from a security perspective. It just complicates the architecture and can also reduce some of the security benefits that you can get. And so we're, we're actually evolving our architecture to more of the uh, proxy sidecar per container. Interesting. So why wouldn't you be able to just do security policy management 
with that model where you have the service proxy singularly sitting on the host? Yeah, it's partially an integration issue as well, which is now if you have a service proxy that's global for the host, it now needs to be told which security policies to use for which service. And and one of the actually one of the biggest problems we've had is you can't easily identify the service that's making a connection to you. Typically, we use TCP for connections between the service and the proxy. That gives you very little knowledge of who is the remote service that's talking to you, what security policies apply to that service. So what tokens can you add in? What authorization checks can you add? There's a bunch of questions around that that are harder with TCP. And I think part of the problem is that the point of doing this authentication in the proxy is so that you don't have to bake this kind of logic into the service. If every service needs to have some truly secure way of verifying identity and connecting to the proxy, you've solved most of the problem of having services connect directly to each other already. So in a sidecar model, I think one of the benefits that we're looking for is having the connection between the service process and the proxy be um, private to those two processes. Um, So you don't have to do a complicated security handshake there. And you can have all the security logic live in the connections between the proxies. Deploying to the cloud should be simple. You shouldn't feel locked in, and your cloud provider should offer you customer support 24-7. Because you might be up in the middle of the night trying to figure out why your application is having errors. And your cloud provider's support team should be there to help you. Linode is a simple, efficient cloud provider with excellent customer support. Linode has been offering hosting for 16 years, and the roots of the company are in its name. Linode gives you Linux nodes at an affordable price with security, high availability, and customer service. At linode.com sedaily you can get started with 2 gigabytes of RAM and 50 gigabytes of SSD for only $10. There are also plans for cheaper and for more money. Linode makes it easy to deploy and scale your application with high uptime and simplicity. Features like backups and node balancers give you additional tooling when you need it. Go to linode.com sedaily to support Software Engineering Daily and get your application deployed to Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D dot com slash S-E daily. Thank you, Linode, for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I think this is a good time to discuss what you guys actually work on. So the last few shows that, that I've done with Uber engineers have been around things that I would call platform engineering. So we did a show about M3, which is the logging service. This is something that's going to be, or logging and monitoring service. This is something that's that's going to be on, you know, it will involve every service will will adopt it. And then we did a show about Peloton, the, the scheduler that every service gets scheduled onto. What do you guys work on? Are you working on individual services or platform engineering type things? So both... 
Akshay and I have been platform engineers for, for the past few years. So I actually worked very heavily on the service proxy that we were talking about earlier. And Akshay was a big part of that, that proxy as well. And then we kind of work on closely related areas. But I, I work more on the basically the service discovery, load balancing, thinking about the sidecar service mesh solution, bringing some of the benefits of uh, what's going on today with Istio and Envoy outside of Uber, bringing that to Uber today. So that's that's what I tend to focus on. And the reason this kind of overlaps well with Akshay is all of this infrastructure is written in Go. And so when I first started Uber, Go was pretty immature. And so I helped build some of the core networking libraries in Go and then we started building this proxy in Go, and then the service discovery platform is now in Go as well. And so Akshay and I have kind of worked on this Go infrastructure platforms. And then I joined the networking team to work with Prashant and actually help build that proxy, and then have since gone on to work on our Go platforms and core libraries team. So that team's job is to build the service frameworks and many but not all of the core libraries that go into almost every Go service at Uber. We'll definitely get into Go and Go performance because I've seen some some great talks from, I think, both of you that regard Go. But since since we're on the subject of this service mesh, service proxy layer, it's a curious discussion because it's this is an emerging technology and it's it's hard to it it's it's hard for me at least as an outsider to really evaluate the state of things and i guess make predictions about things i guess in your research of the service mesh and service proxy area what has come to mind as as a you know a vision for how this is going to unfold like do you think do you think that Istio is going to be this very rich ecosystem that that sits kind of like separate from the Kubernetes ecosystem, and and Istio is is the service mesh that everybody should place a bet on, or do you think it's like a multi mesh world where you know some people want Linkerd from for some reasons, and some people want Istio for some reasons? You know, what's the importance of what the different proxies are? Should everybody just be using Envoy? No, that's a that's a big bag of questions, but maybe you could just <laughs> give me your diagnosis of the service mesh situation. I think my perspective on that is a little bit zoomed out. I think my sense is that Kubernetes and these sorts of container scheduling systems are definitely the direction that the industry is moving in. And so every cloud platform has a strong motivation to have a bulletproof way of addressing other containers by business purpose. So in our case, we typically call that a service name. So it'll be like the user service and the trip service and something like that. But every company has their own way of mapping business functionality to some string. And so some service mesh-like thing, I think, is a critical part of Google and Amazon and Microsoft having a viable cloud container platform. So there, there will continue to be work and innovation in that field. My view as a mostly libraries and frameworks person for the last year or two is that the right thing to do at this point is to bind very, very loosely to those things. And so you don't want kind of notions that are very, very particular to 
Istio or to Linkerd seeping really far into your business logic, you want to try and keep those at the edges of your logic so you can change them as necessary. Yeah, I think we've looked at Istio Envoy, of course. Um, right now, it is still a little bit too early to, to make a bet that it's all going to be Istio or it's all going to be Envoy, especially at a larger scale. So we've looked at the sidecar and service mesh model. We think it definitely solves a lot of problems, especially when you're dealing with a very diverse microservice architecture. And and for us at Uber, that's important because we have 3,000 services written in different languages and frameworks. And it's important for us to be able to roll out features to all of these services without having to rewrite all of them and, and without having to write libraries and you know platform features in every one of the, these languages as well. So we, we see service mesh as a great way to solve some of those problems. But at the same time, there are still some concerns around performance as one example. Like if we keep adding proxies between services, how much CPU are we spending just on proxying versus the actual business logic? So I think you know, as this evolves, we'll have more data and a better idea of where it's going. But right now, like Akshay said, we, we don't want to tie ourselves to any one technology, but support this model of service mesh. At the same time, keeping in mind that you know maybe service mesh won't solve all the problems. Maybe there are some other ways of solving these problems while still getting some of the performance benefits of peer-to-peer. To get to what you guys do, I worked at Amazon for about eight months. And one thing that's cool about working one of these big companies like an Amazon or an Uber is that you, you come into work and you, you have an email in your inbox that's like, your service has been upgraded or your service proxy has been upgraded and all you need to do is like install this dependency and then now you've got access to it. And it's a very magical feeling, which comes from just having a platform engineering team and a company that is like 10 years old or, you know, older oftentimes or slightly younger. I'd love to know about the process of updating the platform that engineers are working off of, because of course, most people who are writing service logic within Uber, I assume, don't really know much about the service proxy layer. All they know is, you know, they wake up one day and their services are more reliable. So can you tell me a little bit about that deployment process and, and the, the process of rolling out new platform features to people? Yeah, I think I would say that Uber is still quite a bit smaller and less mature than an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft in this space. But probably the best example of this is actually the the routing kind of host sidecar that Prashant and I worked on that we were talking about. Uh, it was a replacement of the previous system we used which was written in JavaScript and was just having problems scaling to the request volume and the number of services that we had built. And by 2016, it was getting pretty creaky. And that's when we staffed up this project to replace it. I think that was one of the better upgrades and rollouts that um, Prashant and I have had. We ended up building something that was compatible kind of at the network layer with the previous system. 
and we rolled it out gradually and moved tiers of traffic over to the new system. So we started with some of the least critical stuff, then we moved on a handful of the most critical things to make sure the new system handled our most demanding users, and then moved over the remainder of the traffic. And for the most part, there were no code changes required, and it was pretty much as you described. Um, we'd send emails to people just notifying them that we were moving their traffic over and that they shouldn't see any problems. In fact, they should see a pretty significant performance and reliability boost. And that's more or less what happened. I will say though that, that is, that's the ideal case. Um, it's what we, what we aim for, but we don't always hit the mark there. Yeah. So I guess it's just a matter of updating the service that's the, or the, I guess the container that's running on the host. If you're updating like a service proxy, you just get the rights to that host and then you just roll out an update and probably gradually move the traffic over to that updated service proxy. You mentioned that you did an upgrade from a JavaScript-based proxy to the Go-based proxy. I guess this is a good time to get into Go. So could you contrast JavaScript and Go from the standpoint of of building a proxying layer like that? Yeah, so I think Go really is made for solving problems like this. It, it really did make it a lot easier versus JavaScript. You know, it was designed for a, for the browser initially. And so we, we ran into some interesting issues with JavaScript. So one example is back when we were deploying this JavaScript proxy, we'd have trouble with the V8 garbage collector if we got if we if the heap size grew to over 1.5 gigabytes i think there was like a threshold after which the garbage collector behavior just rapidly declined and we were just better off restarting the process it wasn't really intended to for that that large scale heap size at least back then javascript was of course single threaded and i don't think we had service workers or anything back then either that also is a little bit limiting because now any cpu bound operation you do in your thread is blocking everything else in the process there's nothing else you can do and so we often found that the proxy is typically made up of two separate kind of functionalities one is more control so getting control messages about service discovery, where things are running, etc. And then there's the routing. And what we found is any slowdowns in the control pieces could affect the routing just because it was single threaded and blocking the event loop. Those kinds of issues were, were resolved by using Go because Go kind of takes concurrency and parallelism as, as first class concepts in the language. So that that made it a lot easier to build a system where you could have a background uh, thread that was interacting with our service discovery platform. It receives updates. Maybe the update is huge, so it ends up blocking that specific thread for a while, but it doesn't affect the routing. The routing is still happening in some other threads, so the, there was no kind of spikes in latency when we were processing large amounts of control data. It was probably uh, easier to deploy Go, of course, because it's static. So it's much nicer to just build a single binary and just ship that binary to, to hosts rather than having to kind of have some sort of packaging and then distribution of the package, a little bit of additional complexity that you can avoid by doing that. And in general, Go is 
tends to be a lot more efficient for some CPU bound operations, just because it is a statically compiled language. So we did see some good performance wins just by writing some of the logic in Go versus the, the JavaScript implementation. I'll say part of that is also because, um, at least for us, performance in Go was easier to reason about and it was easier to, to flag performance problems in code review. There are definitely a lot of really, really expert JavaScript programmers at Uber and they have produced some spectacularly efficient JavaScript, but it tends to be finicky and a little bit error prone even for them. And so our feeling was that as a project that was going to live on for the long term at Uber and going to need to survive handoff between multiple engineers as people come on and off this particular project, Go was a little bit less finicky performance wise. Yeah, well, you know, as you as you mentioned, the you have the the V8 garbage collector, which I don't think is going to be as performant. Go is garbage collected, right? Yes, Go is garbage collected. Okay, but the Go has Go has a little bit more. I mean, Go as a language was completely architected to to be very performant from from day one and to run as a back end system. So I imagine the garbage collector is a little bit uh, more tuned for this kind of thing. But in addition, you have the concurrency model. I believe the concurrency model of Node Node JS, the JavaScript framework that you were using, is more of this event loop where it's essentially just round robining through the different threads rather than actually having threads running concurrently. So you have like better performance out of the box from Go. But that said, when you did deploy this this pro- go proxy layer eventually you wanted better performance you you want to be able to profile your go service and have better performance and that's where some of the the talks that i've seen from i can't remember which, which of you gave it but the talk that i watched about performance in go and improving performance which was really insightful maybe we could just go through the process of profiling and improving a go program from your point of view yeah sure i think think you might be referring to a couple of the talks i've done on profiling go so of course those talks will get into a little bit more detail but in general what what we really liked about go is it's it's built in profiling is completely built into the the compiler the frameworks and so you can just hit a running process and take a live profile and find out what's using up your cpu so it's so easy to get started but of course when you're building something extremely high performant like something like a proxy layer you don't want to just build it and then profile it later on so we took a performance first i'd say like performance first mindset while building this and so we were every time we were adding any logic we were writing benchmarks we had a a bunch of like we know what slows down go go tends to be slowed down by allocating a fair bit and so go does give you enough control that you can write code in a way such that objects are allocated on the stack rather than on the heap you can run the go compiler with flags to tell you why something is on the heap so when something's on the heap and why it's on the heap use that to figure out whether there's a better way of writing it so it's allocated on the stack we often have we we wrote like integration test kind of benchmarks so that we knew end-to-end performance of proxying was 
you know, some certain number of requests a second or requests a second per call. And we'd make sure we were watching that number closely as we were building this proxy because you want to you want to know that you're not slowing down the performance over time. You want to make sure you're maintaining that bar that you've set. And that means you need to monitor that from the get-go. And so I think it's it's more of a mindset of caring about the performance from the beginning than building something and then worrying about the performance because there are a lot of design changes and API changes you need to do sometimes for performance reasons. And that gets harder to do once you've already built the system. So I think it's better to think about it from the beginning. And I think that's actually where something like Zap is a great example of a performance first kind of mindset. And I'll, I'll let Akshay talk about the API of Zap. So actually, as we were building this proxy, um, of course, it's a piece of infrastructure software. And so we're going to be running tens of thousands of instances of this thing across Uber's fleet. And we need to know if any one of those proxies is encountering problems. That usually means we use something like M3 to collect metrics. And we also need to emit logs, um, just regular logs that get written out to some text file and then slurped up into some log ingestion system like Elk or Logly or Papertrail or whatever. And as we started to add some metrics and some logs to this proxy, uh, all of a sudden, all of our performance benchmarks started failing. And we looked into it, and it's basically because all of these logging libraries were allocating a tremendous number of small objects on the heap. And so we looked at our needs and started designing a logging API with the sole purpose of remaining fast and keeping data off the heap. And what came out of that is Zap. Um, It's Uber's most popular open source Go code, um, at least as far as I know, measured by GitHub stars at least. And I think the primary insight there is that like many places, we log in JSON now and that it's possible to write JSON without constantly emitting or constantly allocating maps and pointers. One other thing we we did do while building out this proxy and other Go infrastructure, the profiling tools that were built in were great, but sometimes they're a little bit hard to digest the output. And so we also built some tools to make it a little bit easier to understand what exactly the profiling data was telling us. And so that's where GoTorch, which is a tool that takes the profiling data and visualizes it as a flame graph, we built that to better understand this data. And that's actually been so popular now that the Go team has built this into PProf. So now it can natively emit flame graphs, which are much easier to visualize and understand than, than the profiling output that was present earlier. And flame graphs are useful because they give you a kind of a trace of how different services are are being called and how long those different services are spending in in subcalls, right? I think you could use a flame graph for that. In this particular context, we're not talking about um, benchmarking calls between services. Um, what we mean more is uh, within a single Go program, if I'm looking at the stats coming out of this proxy and I notice that 
yesterday it was using a tenth of a CPU and today it's using half a CPU and I want to know why. What I would do is I would make a request or make uh, start running some traffic through the proxy and I'd use this flame graphing tool which will tell me how long the program is spending in each function call. And if I compared that with the flame graph from the day before, maybe I would be able to notice that, for example, some logging function went from being super cheap yesterday to suddenly being really expensive. And then I can track down the changes that we've made in the logging library and figure out where we introduced this performance regression. Understood. In that talk, there was one part where you spoke about having to look at assembly code to optimize it. When would a Go programmer need to look at assembly code for the purposes of optimization? Yeah, so I love deep diving into into everything that's running in my process. And so there are times when I'll often even dig into the assembly. And the Go profiling tools make it extremely easy to do that as well. You can ask it to print out a function and you see oh there's a line of code there that's using up more time than i would expect and of course a line of code actually is you know could be one could be 10 could even be more than that in terms of instructions and so sometimes it's nice to look at the instructions to get a better understanding of why that line of code is slow and so that's when i'll tend to dig in but at the same time it isn't something i would recommend that most people do it doesn't really give you a huge, huge benefit to the amount of kind of complexity and cost of understanding what's going on. So I always tell people, if you care about nanoseconds, then maybe looking at the assembly is a good idea and you might find some wins. If we're talking about milliseconds, then no, it's, it's definitely not worth it. And so I'll only ever dig in if it's something that's run millions of times in a second and it's actually worth optimizing, then then I'd say, yeah, it's worth looking at the assembly and understanding what's happening. I will also say that despite reading a lot of assembly in writing this proxy, we never stoop to the level of writing Go assembly, which you can also do, but is rarely a good idea. When you modify Go assembly, does that mean like you're modifying it for every single instruction or do you like make a custom instruction with like fewer assembly lines so the assembly we're talking about is actually like a platform independent assembly that's part of the go compiler tool chain oh okay and so what you can do if you choose is you can implement a function in assembly instead of implementing it in go so it's not like we're patching like the x86 assembly that the go compiler produces it's basically a choice you make when the when you write the code. Um, you can write it in Go, or you can write the function in assembly. Is that like a, now is that like a bytecode language? Like I said, I don't know too much about the compilation path of Go. It's kind of similar to a bytecode language, but it is a little bit lower level than that. So it does look a lot closer to something like x86 or ARM assembly, but it's it tries to be platform independent in terms of you're not dealing with the physical registers on the hardware, but they have some virtual register idea, virtual program counter, and so on. And they have a couple of instructions which might actually map to one or two real instructions on a specific platform. It's basically, there are some cases where you need to write Go assembly, especially when you're writing the Go compiler and the Go, Go platform itself. 
and they wanted to avoid having too much platform specific assembly. So that's where it ties in, especially when it's like switching stacks, but when it's switching what function is running on a single physical thread, when it's switching Go routines, there are some cases where you need to dig a little bit lower level than what the Go compiler, like what the Go language will let you do. And that's where the Go assembly comes in handy. So it's still platform agnostic, but you get to get a little bit lower level than what's needed. So it sounds like the Go assembly language, is is it like the last step before Go code is turned into a binary? I can give you a high-level overview of how the build tool chain typically works in Go. Um, and I think for this particular explanation, it's it's easiest to um, use like C++ as a reference point. Um, and so I know not everyone is familiar with C or C++, but typically what you do to, to build a Go program is you type Go build. And that's a little bit like a standardized built-in makefile that understands how Go projects are structured and how to tie together all the pieces of your project into a single platform-specific kind of native binary. And so what, what Go build does is it um, uses a bunch of conventions that are built into the Go programming language to run a like C or C++ style compiler and linker under the hood. Um, and what those things dump out is a native binary. And what that means is that it's specific to the platform and the processor architecture that it's going to run on, and that you can just copy that thing to a machine and run it. This is in contrast to a language like Python or Node, where typically there's a Python interpreter or like Node's V8 runtime and you have to copy the runtime to the target machine and all of your source code and then interpret the source code where it's going to run. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So the assembly is one of the inputs into Go build. Um, there's a convention of how you lay the files out and you can have a mix of Go files and a mix of assembly files. And the standard Go compiler toolchain knows how to knit those things together in the right way. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. 
They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I to learn more about G2I. Thank you to G2I for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I. Question about performance. There are some kinds of performance issues that only arise at the statistical tails, so things that can happen somewhat infrequently, but when they happen, they can be quite problematic. Could you describe the phenomenon of tail latency and how you've experienced it within Uber? Yeah, we tend to monitor almost exclusively for tail latency for some of our infrastructure components like our proxy, because like you said, I mean, the P50 is not as relevant as the P99, especially when you're doing a huge number of requests. The P99 will end up affecting like 60% of requests just because of how many hops through the proxy a single user request can make. Could could, could you define those terms, P50 and P99? Some listeners yeah, may not know. of course. Yep. So while measuring our latencies, we tend to focus on not the median, which is the P50 or the 50th percentile, but rather the P99 or even higher, which is what the 99th percentile of the slowest request. Actually, I'll let Akshay explain this. He's this is his. No, no, that's. I was just gonna say. So the the P50 or the median. It's just if you take all of the latencies and you sort them, it's the one in the middle. So 50% of requests are faster than that, and 50% are slower. And then if people talk about a P99 or a P99.9, that's just picking something that's closer to the max of all the latencies. Um, So the P99 means that 99% of things are slower and 1% are faster. The P99.9 is the same thing, but even closer to the max. And then if you're being super, super picky, um, you measure the max. So for our infrastructure things, like we tend to focus on throughput per CPU core. So like how many requests can I proxy in one second given one CPU core? And then some number close to the max for latency. So um, for our service proxy, we might say, I must be able to proxy 10,000 requests per second per core. And the overhead that the proxying introduces should be less than one millisecond at the P99 or the P99.9. Understood. And so what implications does that have for an engineer that's trying to discover and iron out tail latencies? I think for us in Go in particular, that means the usual stuff if you're doing performance-sensitive engineering, so it's being a little bit picky about data structures and algorithms, But the part of it that ended up getting really nitpicky is basically being extremely careful about when you let data escape to the heap um, and when you keep it on the stack. And so that's where we ended up using GoTorch all the time. That's when we ended up looking at assembly all the time. Um, And that's where we ended up writing libraries like SAP, whose purpose is basically to keep values on the stack and avoid heap allocations, which tend to be pretty expensive. 
as we begin to wrap up, I think the topic I'd like to get both of your reflections on is this subject of writing performant platform engineering tools. I think this is a, a growing area in the industry. I think more and more companies are adopting some kind of platform engineering. So I'd love to just close by getting your each of your individual pieces of wisdom on writing performant platform engineering tools. I think that's a that's a great question and it's as infrastructure people, I know I know Rob who you talked to before would absolutely agree with this. Performance is a feature of infrastructure and it's an important feature. For us at Uber because of the language choices that we've made throughout the rest of our stack we tend to do a lot of our more performance sensitive infrastructure work in go and that's because the build and deployment and management tools for go are mature here and any gains we make in core libraries the benefits then bubble up to all of the business layer services that are also written in go i think there's a ton of really interesting work going on in other languages so c++ is still evolving rapidly rust is coming up really quickly there are somewhat more esoteric languages like Pony or Crystal that I think are really interesting too. I try to restrain my interest in those things to my off hours and not inflict my Crystal interest on Prashant during work hours. I think Uber in general, and I'm, I'm sure any large high-scale kind of company will end up realizing how important performance is at all layers of the business. So to really provide a good user experience, you have to be thinking about performance. You have to think about what is the latency of this user interaction. And that ends up pushing requirements all the way throughout the stack to make sure that you can respond to these requests quickly. With a microservice architecture, you may have anywhere between 10 and 50 calls that happen for a single user request. And for each of those 10 calls, they all need to do some common things. They might be serialization, logging, RPCs, security. And so all of these need to happen very, very quickly to really respond to that user request in a reasonable amount of time. And so you end up pushing pretty high performance requirements for all of your services, but especially the common libraries that are used throughout all of these services. And so that's where I think the platforms do have to be really efficient. You don't want to spend all of your time serializing JSON when you have real business logic to do as well. And you don't want to have to delay the user request by half a second because you spent too much time serializing. And one thing we're focusing on here at Uber is is distributed tracing. So Uber has open-sourced Jaeger, which is our distributed tracing platform. But what Jaeger does solve is telling us where time is being spent in this microservice architecture. And so that way you can at least, you know where to focus on and what services to look at to understand why performance is slow or what's happening. I think Jaeger and the service mesh, which provides latency numbers into every single hop, these kind of platforms, they are all there to provide the introspection to what's happening. They have to give you the metrics to figure out, are my requests slow? And if they are slow, where where is the time being spent? Which service? And then once you get to a service, why is the service slow? There's a whole range of different 
problems there. And I think you know there's different ways of solving each of those problems, but you do need to look at all of these different areas to, to really build a performant user experience. I just wanted to tack on one thing that I, I think we would be remiss to not mention, which is that in the particular parts of infrastructure that Prashant and I work on, we solve all of these problems in Go. But we have a whole set of compatriots who build a bunch of mission-critical infrastructure in Java, and they have all the same problems, and they have tackled basically the same set of issues with very similar approaches. And so I don't want to leave you with the impression that literally everything at Uber is written in Go. All right. Well, thanks for the clarification. Prashant and Akshay, guys, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate you having us on. Thanks, Jeff. It was great talking to you. This podcast is brought to you by Wix.com. Build your website quickly with Wix. Wix code unites design features with advanced code capabilities, so you can build data-driven websites and professional web apps very quickly. You can store and manage unlimited data. You can create hundreds of dynamic pages. You can add repeating layouts, make custom forms, call external APIs, and take full control of your site's functionality using Wix code APIs and your own JavaScript. You don't need HTML or CSS. With Wix Code's built-in database and IDE, you've got one-click deployment that instantly updates all the content on your site, and everything is SEO-friendly. What about security and hosting and maintenance? Wix has you covered, so you can spend more time focusing on yourself and your clients. If you're not a developer, it's not a problem. There's plenty that you can do without writing a line of code, although, of course, if you are a developer, then you can do much more. You can explore all the resources on the Wix code site to learn more about web development wherever you are in your developer career. You can discover video tutorials, articles, code snippets, API references, and a lively forum where you can get advanced tips from Wix code experts. Check it out for yourself at wix.com sed. That's wix.com sed. You can get 10% off your premium plan while developing a website quickly for the web. To get that 10% off the premium plan and support Software Engineering Daily, go to wix.com sed and see what you can do with Wix code today. Wow! 